You're listening to Just Asking, where we discuss the subject that everyone wants to talk about without really knowing how to talk about it. Why do we human beings, who are obviously so sexual, have such a difficult time talking about managing this intimate part of our lives? We talk about managing our money, we manage our careers, our diets, and even our stock portfolios. Yet when it comes right down to it, we really don't know how to talk about managing our sexuality. And certainly, we don't know how to talk about doing it intelligently. So that's exactly what we talk about on this show. Welcome to Just Asking, a safe place where we talk about human sexuality. I'm Stephen Ng, and in my decades of working with people who have sexual problems, I've learned that we can all manage our sexuality better, more intelligently. Stephen, I've been talking to my friends, as I want to do, and uh, we were talking about broken hearts and how we've all had one. And after we have our hearts broken, we all vow never doing that again, right? Um, obviously, that's not realistic. So my question to you is, what can we learn from having our hearts broken? And how do we go on from there? Well, you know, this is a great question because a lot of people don't get this right. And really, I think there's no excuse for it because it's not like we're all 13-year-olds anymore and this is our first breakup. Uh, we've all been through this before and we have some sense that love is an essential part of our life and we need love in our lives so the idea that uh, I'm going to somehow draw a line in the sand and say that's it throwing my hands up in the air that's it I'm never ever going to go through that again I'm done with men or in my case I'm done with women um, just sick of them that there, there's a understandable reason why one might feel that way for a moment but as a line of thinking or as part of a plan it just doesn't make sense so what would make sense and I think the first thing people need to do is, is just pause for a minute, maybe an hour, maybe a few days, and give thanks. Whether they believe in uh, a god or the gods of love or uh, no gods at all except the gods who believe in them. Uh, I think giving thanks because is important because it's all over. There was a fatally flawed romance in my life. And now it's over. I'm no longer living with it. And I say fatally flawed because had it, had it been successful, had it been loving, had it been fulfilling for both people, it would have gone on and endured. And I wouldn't be sitting around here with a broken heart all disappointed. So I, I, I need to start by changing my way of thinking about disappointment that sometimes it's really great to get things over with, and this is an example of that. So even if you thought that your relationship was wonderful, like, like you didn't know that there was anything wrong, and then your partner comes to you and tells you, yeah, I'm not happy, I'm leaving, you should still be thankful? Yeah, let's say um, you, your partner informs you they're gay, and that they're not interested in your gender anymore, they don't want to have anything to do with people with your gender that way, um, and they move on. Well, was that ever going to be a sustainable relationship? Did Probably that, not. Yeah, and how many, <laughs> how many more decades did I want to spend investing my life into that relationship when it was so fatally flawed? That's, that's exactly what I mean. So 
The same thing with somebody who really isn't that crazy about me or, or somebody who was crazy about me for a minute in an infatuation sense, but they may not really have been getting their needs met or I wasn't really getting my needs met with them. And it's heartbreaking when it's all over with because it's so disappointing. I mean, there's, there's hardly any endeavor in the human experience in which we invest more time, energy, and heartfelt emotion, heartfelt feelings, than romance. And and when it's over, it truly is disappointing. Well, and I think that, I mean, I know when my marriage ended, part of it wasn't just that the relationship ended, but my in, my vision for my life. Everything I had envisioned for my life was over. Quite And quite naturally, you would conclude that because we all start off marriage with a myth, or we all start off romance with a myth of true love, and we expect it to, we want to touch all the bases, you know, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and all the rest. The man wants to be the good guy, typically. And whether we're gay or straight, young or old, we have these myths that really are not necessarily untrue. And it's not, and I don't mean to demean these expectations at all when I call them myth. I simply call them myth because they're larger than life. They're, 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 in a sense, very fulfilling if we can just get those myths to, to have life and to breathe and to, to walk their way through our years together. But so often we make thinking errors, we make bad decisions, and the person we picked, we really didn't do a very good job picking them. You know, I, I tell my clients, uh, well, I see what your problem is, and they'll say, what's that? Well, you had an impaired picker. And for the men... What I like to tell my male clients, uh, and I usually get a laugh for telling them that they have an impaired picker, and they usually say, say what? And I said, well, that part of you, that part of your brain that picks out partners wasn't doing a very good job that day when you made the decision to pick that person out or that month or that year that you made that decision. And for whatever reason, there's something really important we need to figure out so you don't make that mistake again. Or, and we've talked about before, maybe you picked well, you know, but things change. Things change over the course of 10, 20, 30 years, and you're not the same person that you were then, and they're not the same person they were then. Well, you know, I appreciate that hopeful and positive spin you put on it. (laughs) (laughs) But I have to say, you know, sometimes I think in life it's so important to embrace failure as the first step toward learning how to do better. You know, uh, when I started the football play, it all seemed like such a good idea. And then it ended disastrously with my shoulder getting dislocated and losing control of the ball. And the other team won the game and the season. And I'm a big loser. So figuring out what I did wrong, I mean, it was it was, it was a pretty pretty wrong move. Now, I know that people do change but even, even that in, in, has within it the notion of failure because adaptive couples adapt to changing circumstances. And even if uh, I lose my job, she gains some weight, we have an unexpected child, um, there, there's some disaster in the economy or in our personal lives, couples that are successful don't get tripped up over these details of everyday life. And there, there's always some flaw that we can discover by peeling back all of the 
expectations and the illusions and the, the gosh, I wish that hadn't happened, uh, to, to look at what was really going on because we all, you know, why, why do we do even do this thing called coupling? Why do we get married? Why do we have boyfriends and girlfriends? We do that because in our, with our species, we've found that it's much more effective to form a strategic alliance with another human being in order to pool our resources to face life's troubles and by uniting to overcome them so that we can maximize our own personal happiness and success so that everyone can become more than what they would have become had they been on their own. So it's so we can buy a bigger house. <laughs> <laughs> and for some people, that's how they define success. Unfortunately, I, you know, I think it's a bigger concept than that. So if we're, if we're really trying to um, maximize our success and happiness and our own human potential in, in our relationships, we have to have that eye toward adaptivity because, frankly, some people uh, are so rigid they're incapable of adaptation. So, um, so you said number one is to give thanks. Right. And it feels like we're moving into number two. Yeah, we are. And uh, you notice my, my rather graceless transition to that <laughs> uh, point. But, I, you know, I don't want to let go of number one because number one is really important in terms of transitioning from despair to wisdom. Because without wisdom, I'm really not going to learn what it is I need to learn in step number two. And step number two is to engage mindfully in a debriefing of the entire cascade of failure. Yeah, it's important for me not to skip the step of being grateful because that helps my brain transition from uh, animalistic enduring of pain to a higher functioning embrace of wisdom. And I'm going, that wisdom is going to result from step number two, which is to perform a debriefing, an intentional debriefing of the entire cascade of failure that led to my brokenheartedness. Now, even football teams do uh, a review of game tapes where they just, they try to uncover where they lost control of the ball and the game uh, military commanders do the same thing when they have the luxury of going back and reviewing a military campaign. Doctors do the same kind of thing when they're reviewing what went wrong in a surgery. And we owe it to ourselves to thoughtfully and to mindfully, to intentionally, and any other new age word I can put in there <laughs> to emphasize, debrief and review what went wrong. And it's no one thing that went wrong, of course. It's, it's many things, starting off from maybe I stepped out of that house, uh, out of the house that day. It's no one thing that went wrong. It's probably many things that went wrong, including that day I stepped out of the house without mindfully taking care of my incredible emotional neediness and preventing that neediness from having me fall in for the first person who paid attention to me. You know, that's, that's kind of where a lot of this stuff starts with so many of us is just from the very beginning before we even meet the other person, failing to take care of ourselves. But what else could possibly have gone wrong? Where there's, a, there's all the mental health things that 
I don't want to get into today, but the obvious ones are substance abuse and that sort of thing. You know, we we get sometimes so emotionally needy, we want to minimize the fact that my uh, my date always needs to get drunk every time we're together or every time we have sex. And there could be a reason for that. Oh yeah, there is a reason for that. There always is a reason for why human beings do what they do. And uh, maybe I ignored all those other red flags, you know, from the rudeness uh, and the self-centeredness of my partner to the fact that, oh, they didn't share the most major goals in my life. Um, we weren't really truly compatible and I didn't allow myself to just accept that. Oh yeah, once again, I fell in love with somebody who really isn't the, the right partner for me. It doesn't mean they're not a perfectly lovely person, but it would possibly disqualify them from future consideration in a leading role in my life. And we've talked about this before, and this goes back to your um, being a bad picker um, theory on is if you consistently pick the same st type of person who is bad for you, then obviously that's something in you. Yeah. So, we, <laughs> I mean, that's I hope that's really obvious to everyone listening to this. I, most of us know at least one person, a man or a woman, who consistently keeps dating people who abuse alcohol, for example. Uh, or the, the guy who can never fall in love with any woman unless she's had three different children by three different men. And he just needs to take care of them no matter what uh, until she finds uh, the next guy in her life. We, we, we tend to operate in patterns and we make the same mistakes over and over again. Why? Well, because life isn't happening to us. We are choosing and making decisions as we go forward. And frankly, you know, uh, along with that debriefing we do of looking at what we did wrong uh, and, what, and so often we focus on what was wrong with the other person, I, we really need to do some soul searching here and take a look at what might be wrong with me. You know, because I mentioned emotional neediness, but it might also be the case that I'm really simply not ready for a successful, intimate relationship that's going to be enduring in a commitment over several years. I might not be ready in terms of, uh, I'm thinking of several of the young men I know who really aren't sure who they are in terms of their career. And there's an old uh, saying from a writer who noted that generally uh, men have two decisions in life. We have to decide where we're going and who we're going with. And the problem with most American men is we answer those two questions in exactly the opposite order. Why do we do that? Well, I, I can't think of any better reason than just careless neediness. Why would that be unique to men? That seems like it would apply just as well to women. Well, and, and I, th I have to say you're right. It's just giving the writer his due. He was okay. talking about okay. men. <laughs> okay. so, so people. Yeah, and it makes, I mean, if you just put it maybe in a historical context, if you're uh, a couple of people living in Boston in, say, 1799 and deciding where you're going with your life is the difference between opening a candle shop in downtown uh, versus getting in a covered wagon and heading west, I think you'd want a different partner depending on where you're going with your life. Sure. Now, that metaphor is no less true today be simply because we don't have Conestoga wagons going out west. It's still true if I decide I want to 
uh, aggressively pursue business, or I'm really more interested in seeking a meaningful life in the nonprofit sector, and I want to start with a couple years spent teaching literacy in Africa. Uh, I'm going to re need really different partners if I'm going to have a partner at all. You know what it occurred to me yesterday <clears throat> about myself on this one is that I'm a little bit of an empath and that I will take on the um, emotional whatever's going on with the other person. And so I need to keep people away from me who are going to <laughs> um, be very dramatic, very emotional, who, because it, it makes me like that. And I was, because I was hanging out with a friend who's very calm, and I thought, boy, it's nice hanging out with somebody who's just super calm. Honestly, we need to have a whole separate discussion on the difference between normal problem solving versus people who create drama. Because um, I think when we're really young, we don't really see the difference or understand it. But as we get older, a lot of us realize we've become very addicted to serenity in our lives. Mm -hmm. We no longer need the uh, excitement and adrenaline of um, rescuing people from disasters or commiserating with people who are chronically miserable and who needlessly and repeatedly shoot themselves in the foot. So, you know, after, after doing that debriefing though, I think it's really important to go on to step number three. And a lot of people skip this step. I think it's important to remember that every one of these three simple steps and I say simple, meaning, not meaning that they're not difficult. I don't, they're, not, they're not simple to do. Yeah, they're, they may be difficult to execute, but they're so simple to understand. But to remember the third step, which is really different from the way a lot of us view building our lives in romance. Because frankly, a lot of us don't mindfully build our lives. We allow life to happen. But it is our decisions that help us determine our identity and what it is we want from life. So after this last heartbreak, I'm hoping that those people who are listening to this right now will consider what they would need to do to build a life worth living, even if, horror of horrors, they ended up alone for the rest of their lives. What would it take to have a really terrific life? And then to mindfully build that life, you know, for a lot of us going through a heartbreak, it means taking an inventory of well, really, do I have any interests outside of my romance? Or was I so obsessed with the emotional neediness of my partner that I let go of all my other friends and I let go of all my interests in order to have the emotional resources to prop up that relationship and keep it going, kind of like a, an accident victim who's getting CPR on the side of a freeway. <laughs> I want to be able to let go of that and then take stock of my own life and start building my social circle back to a healthy level if I have failed to do that uh, or if I've been neglecting my friends for the last six months or six years that I've been in this relationship and to, you know, frankly, to apologize to them if I've been neglecting them and then to go on to develop uh, the interests that really make my life happy and fulfilled regardless of whether I have a romance. Now, I'm not trying to minimize uh, the fact that I believe human beings have an innate DNA-driven need for love and affiliation. I think that's important. And I don't think the hugs from my mother are going to be nearly adequate to meet my needs for getting a hug from somebody who's romantically and sexually interested in me. But I think I need to take responsibility for doing the best I can do. And when we do that, we end up building a life that's truly attractive 
and we all we talk about attractive people and we usually mean physical attractiveness but what about the physically attractive person who is living a train wreck of a life and they really are just kind of miserable waiting for that magic person to come along and make it all come together and make them happy well that's really not very attractive when you look at it in the cold light of day we are attracted to happy people who feel fulfilled who have joy in their lives, laughter on their lips, and are, are really leading a life that inspires us to want to press in and get closer. So if we don't do that, if we neglect that step, uh, I think we're missing out. This has been Stephen Ng, talking with my friend Jackie about courtship. And if you have any questions you would like us to discuss, tweet us at Stephen Ng, MFT. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. This has been a production by Ing Intellectual in cooperation with Estepona Group. Interview by Jackie Shelton. Music produced by Octophonics. Editing by Lucas Pichelli. To listen to more episodes, visit stephening.com. <laughs>